Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze and interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. We have a special two-parter. We haven't done this in a while. Yeah. I want to say it was H.P. Mendoza. I feel like possibly. Mm. That was a, that was like two and a half hours. That was that should have been a three parter. That was a, a bottle of Jameson. That yeah, <laughs> that should have been a four parter, really. But we um, it we didn't have, seem like it. It was a it was a two parter today. It really flew no. by. But yeah, yeah um, we had a great storyteller in his name, Stephen Satterfield. Um, he's changing the way that people are talking and looking and tasting. Uh, the food world and um, and looking at it. I mean, Hopefully affecting already, the way you live. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've i known Stephen, I don't want to say no as a best friend, but I've known him since 2010, 11. Um, I kind of followed his career. He worked at a, a beautiful local restaurant called Nopa, which is still around and still delicious. Um, and he was, just, he was just one of the managers there and just really great on the floor, great with great with the public, uh, great with guests. And uh, he left and he has been traveling the world and he created a beautiful digital and um, and paper uh, magazine called Whetstone. And we had him in to talk about what he's been up to and um, how he and his crew are looking at food and writing about food. Uh, it's in a very different way than, than everyone's used to. So enjoy our first part of uh, episode 252 of the Bitch Talk podcast with Stephen Satterfield. Bitch Talkers. Very special guest in the studio. His name's Stephen Satterfield. And um, Ange was asking me earlier, she's like, how do you know this guy? <laughs> I was like, just because. Um, no, but I used to, when I had money, I used to go to Nopa. <laughs> and I don't mean, oh, I had lots of money, but the extra, the extra money before I was hustling. Mm. No money, I used to go to Nopa. And you were so sweet and just the best manager and best psalm there, I thought. And just welcoming um, and just stood out amongst actually all of the restaurants we used to, I used to go to and had money. But um, I really, I loved your engagement with everyone and you were just warm and welcoming. And then you left Nopa. Somehow I found you again through all the social, you know, creeping I do. And then you just kind of took off. So that's. How I know you? Perfect. <laughs> I think that's a perfect summary. Okay, great. <laughs> um, but before we get into you leaving Nopa and creating Nopalize and um, doing your own thing, which we'll get to also, do you want to tell us a little bit about growing up in Georgia and your father? Yeah. No, your friend's father's wine collection. Wow, the research is so thorough. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you worry. Not just a pretty face. Yeah, not, not just, just a pretty just face. Not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, but it's a little. It's a. It's a different story. Yeah, it is. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a multi generational AT alien, fifth generation. Whoa! So my family's been there for a very long time, which, um, like most urban cities, is uh, a declining thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel very much of Atlanta. Um, when I was young, my parents decided to uh, send me to private school, which I was not happy about at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some feelings about it. <laughs> but, um, ultimately, uh, and I, I don't know if I am glad that I went to the school per se, um, but it was the intangible things that I wasn't seeing in our mm-hmm. uh, sort of lower middle class upbringing that I think that they were trying to 
um, put me onto. And one of those things, unknowingly for all of us, just ended up being wine. Um, one of my best friends in high school, his father uh, had a very extensive wine collection. And um, I really respected this man. He was a successful banker. Um, he was like low key with his money, but he definitely had lots of money and was just very nice man. Uh, so I just knew that if someone of his, uh, intellectual aptitude and sensibilities in life was really into wine and treated it the way that he did, that there was probably something to it. Mm -hmm. So that was the seed. Um, and then after that, yeah. <laughs> I went to college uh, in Eugene, Oregon. I was going to ask you, how did you uh, pick? That was super random. I, <laughs> some people, when I say I went to Oregon, they're like, did you just choose the furthest place possible? <laughs> yeah, basically. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually exactly what I did. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. Um, it was on a short list of other colleges that I wanted to go to, but really uh, having grown up in Atlanta and having uh, so many people from my family have never left the area. It really, right. I think subconsciously motivated me to want to like really go out and forge my own way. Um, and you know, this was before people were applying to college online, but uh, I got a brochure. Yeah. And I as you do. As yeah. People used to do. I don't yeah. know if they're still doing brochures. Maybe it's PDFs now. Um, <laughs> but basically, the brochure, I remember looking at Eugene through this little pamphlet and thinking, like, I, I would probably really do well there. I would like it there. There was lots of trees. Mm -hmm. That was the biggest selling point for me. Uh, so, proximity to nature has always been the thing that I valued. And um, it just seemed like it had the laid back countercultural vibe for me to go be a college student. Um, so I did that for uh, about a year and a half, and then I realized that was an expensive way for me to find myself because um, mm -hmm. I did not get a scholarship to college. Right. Um, and so it became clear to me that I needed to focus on something that meant something to me or that I could really run with mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't getting that from school and so I decided to go to culinary school in Portland so I stayed in Oregon and um, can, I call can I ask what year yep. that was um, so that was in two, you don't mind I don't mind <laughs> it was in 2004 so kind of before the whole everyone was moving to Portland. Way thing. before. You started it, yeah. Sir. yeah. Because of you. You guys are welcome. Yeah. For Thank you for opening that door. <laughs> yeah, Portland would be nothing without my That's, tenure there. I feel so You should get a cut that. from uh, Portlandia, the profits. Yeah. Of I should, Portlandia. right? right. Yeah. Cultural sh uh, shift shaker. Yeah, kind um, of. That should be part of your title now. From henceforth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're in Portland, 2004. Crazy. Yeah, it, it actually was a cool time to be there. Like, I mean, we're sort of joking about it, but, um, you know, obviously it now has a wonderful reputation mm -hmm. for, for eating and drinking. Vibrant, if um, you will. Yes, very vibrant. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, a lot of the chefs who are of my generation, mm -hmm. um, we were really <clears throat> exposed to, like, uh, this farm to table sensibility that already existed there. It already existed in the Bay area, but it was being talked about in the Bay area and we knew about it in Portland. And so the Bay was always this like aspirational 
food mecca. Mm-hmm. But really, in retrospect, and having been in both places, there's exactly the same things happening, you know, and exactly the same timeline in terms of uh, the trajectory of these movements. You know, they were happening concurrently. So we mm-hmm. all know about Chez Panisse mm-hmm. uh, in 1971 in Berkeley and what that set off. But there was still a, uh, there was, you know, farm to table restaurants in Portland, Oregon in 1971, who also had uh, a well-established local farm network and uh, farmer's market network. So that stuff was already really baked into the DNA of the Portland food culture. Mm -hmm. And I think once there started to be younger chefs uh, with more opportunities to open restaurants there, you started to see more of that. Um, imagination plus the technical skills of having grown up, you know, in Portland, so right. to speak. Plus the the wine. Exactly. In that area is delicious. D- delicious. The Willamette Valley, if you it's will. It's Willamette. I will. Yeah. It's Willamette. <laughs> Damn it. That's... If you're nasty, Willamette. <laughs> Willamette and nasty women nasty. wines. Nasty women wines, right. Um, um, represent. But, I mean, it went hand in hand then for you. It did. I um, so that's how I got into wine. I started off in culinary school um, with visions of being a renowned and celebrated chef, and then I worked in kitchens there for um, about six months, and then I realized like this is actually not glamorous. It's, it's not hard. what I want to do. This is very hard work. Mm-hmm. I love cooking, um, but I would prefer to cook on my own terms in my yeah. own home, mm-hmm. not uh-huh. for other people. Um, so, but what I did find out, uh, during that time is that I was really, really interested in wine. I loved the whole culture of wine. Uh, again, that seed had been planted already when I was in high school. And the first time I got to go to a real winery and see that, uh, and also it was part of the curriculum for me, Mm -hmm. uh, in the hospitality and restaurant management program. Um, and so I had an instructor who was a winemaker who really helped me understand the sort of origin and agricultural side of wine. Um, and I was just really taken by it and have been a dedicated drinker. Since <laughs> I like then. that. Yes, been committed. <laughs> well, you have to. You're always educating yourself. There's another Constantly. title for his business card. Dedicated drinker, cultural ship shape, shaper. Shift, shift shaker. Okay. We're yes. taking note. Go on. Yeah. I'm sure we'll come up with at least like two or three more. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Uh, the interview's out. That's my goal anyway. Okay, good. We'll write these down. Um so with the psalm part, I'm a food nerd, so I'm going to ask you all the nerdy Please, questions. Please, let's get into it. Let's get nerdy <laughs> about wine and food. Um, you, so you, did you graduate from the culinary school and then do psalm? Uh, I w- that's a good question. I was doing those things at the same time. So, Overachiever. God, no. Oh, God. <laughs> trying to drink on my off hours. <laughs> Just trying to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be drinking anyway. At least you were being productive about it. Uh, Maybe. Think- I think so. <laughs> I think uh, what I wanted to do was learn more. And the advice that I was being given, not ironically, was you need to drink more. You right. need to taste more. Um, and so I was like, for real? <laughs> like, <laughs> is that the actual advice? And it, it was actual advice. And so we had um, classes that sommeliers around Portland were mm-hmm. involved in and um, – I mean, we had the proximity of being in the Willamette Valley, so mm-hmm. I could go visit these wineries. Uh, so I had a huge advantage. I mean, it definitely wasn't like going to culinary school in Atlanta or right. even in New York or something, for mm-hmm. that matter. I mean, we really were in one of the greatest regions in 
the world for for viticulture. Um, so that that kind of changed the trajectory of my career, you know, when I saw that it could be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was super young. I mean, when I first started taking these classes, I was 20. Uh, so I was the youngest person in my class at culinary school. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so many people were so much older and it was part of the curriculum that I, no one really asked questions. I was going to ask. You were barely legal. <laughs> yeah. Like, I wasn't there. <laughs> like, I was actually illegal. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but, yeah, by the time everyone had sort of like caught up to the fact that I was a minor, I was oh. already passing my uh second level so wow it just it didn't matter yeah um so <laughs> i ended up passing uh my level two uh two months after my 21st birthday oh congratulations wow <laughs> congratulations that's baby impressive Steven. yeah, yeah. <laughs> little steve um <laughs> we're so proud of you yeah we're so <laughs> i i want to know what were your what was your family thinking they were they gave up on me so long ago <laughs> that it was actually perfect because the expectations were very low right uh when i decided to move to oregon and then when i was like i'm gonna drop out of college it was like okay we, we sort of Imagine this as an outcome for you. Now, my parents are very cool. I mean, they ultimately were like, if you like, you got to find that thing that's real for you. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't come from a lot of money. And so there was never any expectation on my end that they were going to figure it out for me or provide for me. Um, and so I think that was a great impetus for me because I was like, okay, we're square here. You know, right. I'm, I'm a good kid. I'm not going to do anything that will bring shame to the family. Right, you're only drinking mm-hmm. wine at I'm 20. I'm just drinking. Who cares? Like, come on. It's wine. How, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, they kind of just, like, supported that um, development in my life. And it took them many, many years to understand, like, that there was actually a whole culture around it. Um, and then one time they came out to Oregon to visit me, and I got to take them to these wineries. And then they, like, saw me at work and... It was like they were super proud. And they've been proud of me since. Aww. So that's, yeah, that's a good thing. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so so this happened in Oregon, and I know you graduated. And then you worked in a fancy hotel, right? I worked in a fancy hotel. I worked in a fancy restaurant. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the restaurant that I was working at in Portland, I sort of alluded to it earlier but it was the aforementioned 1971 restaurant got it uh called genoa Mm -hmm. and genoa was interesting in that um the way that the kitchen was run it wasn't just like one executive chef it was like a, a team of chefs who would go through uh and do a new menu once a month wow and the menu was uh, regional Italian food. Mm. So this was like a restaurant that was super obsessed with Italy that wanted to deconstruct the cuisine from north to south and back again. I mean, again, regional Italian, like, I mean, people just weren't doing this stuff Mm -hmm. um, back then. And so the way that they, it was like this very old school rudimentary place. You know, they made their own pasta. It was a seven course thing, like definitely a pre-recession restaurant. Um, (laughs) But... uh, Pre-2008. Yeah, pre-08 recession. Um, (laughs) And so they would collect all of these menus once a month from these super talented chefs and store them in enormous notebooks with single-page menus uh, that would have these really 
ornate seven course menus that had been cataloged going back to the 1970s wow. with like the names of farms and like recipes for each dish. So it was just a remarkable education for me. And I was so yeah. young that I didn't understand it. I mean, I just thought I was working at a restaurant. This is just your regular life. You don't know anything else. Yeah, I else. didn't know. <laughs> You're and, like, yeah, everyone stores <laughs> their menus from 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, in retrospect, and you know, I look at the names of a lot of those chefs who mm -hmm. were compiling those menus, and those are the people that went on to uh, sort of make Portland famous in its contemporary sense. Uh, and if not those chefs, then the generation of people who worked beneath them. So just like Chez Panisse, it was a really uh, important family tree um, for contemporary American dining, and um, I was just lucky to end up there. So I stayed there for a couple years. I got to try out being a grown up as a young person, <laughs> um, which is a weird. It's a weird thing to do. Yeah, it was strange, and actually, I got a little overwhelmed by it. Of course, and, um, you're still young. I was super young. I yeah. mean, I think I was like <clears throat> 23 or something Baby. by the time. Yeah. God, uh, I was like, this is making me stressed out and anxious. And mm -hmm. is this going to be my whole life? Because at that time. Um, you know, that was one of the best places to land in town. And right. so I didn't really, I was already running the place. So, you know, I didn't really know like what I was going to do. So I had a bit of a melt meltdown. I went back to Atlanta, um, decided to have a more meaningful role in the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so I worked in restaurants there for a little bit as a sommelier. Um, How was that different than being a Psalm in way different, Pacific Northwest? Way different. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, just the the wine culture. I mean, growing up in a place where grapes grow around you and it's a, a formative part of the economy, like people mm -hmm. just sort of get the culture more. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in Atlanta, I mean, you know, you're talking 10, 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, People just weren't all the way there. I mean, there was like a certain type of person who was, but they were less laid back about their wine. Was it more about labels versus? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's some flashiness, I yes. think, which you see a lot of times when people are insecure about things. Right. And so they got to overcompensate. Um <laughs> And, oh, I love that you said that. Well, you know. <laughs> well, that's about kind of everything. Yeah, in these life, are like yeah. these are universal laws. You, yeah. you see how they show up in yes. different parts of, of life. Yeah. Um, and so I was pretty uninspired by working in the wine business mm -hmm. in Atlanta after coming back from Oregon, and so I decided what I really wanted to do was to help the people along the supply chain. You know, if I was going to be out here talking about farmer equity and mm -hmm. equality and liberation and sustainability that I wanted to be closer to that um, practice. So I started this nonprofit called the International Society of Africans and Wine, which is a mouthful to say, but <laughs> we called it the ISAW Foundation okay. as a short acronym, yeah. um, which is much easier to say. And basically, I mean, again, I was super young, you know, my uh, ambitions were sort of outsized, but originally I wanted to build sort of this training facility for uh, black farm workers or indigenous farm workers in South Africa to develop their skills. And what I mean by that is the way that the wine industry works there is you have all of the labor, I guess it works here the same way, is is 
deconstructed. And so you have seasonal workers who will do the harvest. You have some people who work in the cellar who are cleaning the cellar. Some people are making the wine. Some people are working in the tasting room. And here we have somewhat of a better sense of how it all fits together. But in South Africa, along the value chain, there was no knowledge of how it all fit and Mm. that they were part of this larger system. And that was done very intentionally. That was um, a byproduct of the very same systems of segregation that we saw here Mm -hmm. through civil rights and Jim Crow and slavery. The exact same thing happened there uh, during Mm -hmm. the apartheid. And so after the end of the apartheid, the South African government decided, okay, we want to try to do better and reinvest in some of these communities that have been marginalized uh, over time. And we, one of the ways that we're going to do that is to invest in their training um, in the most significant agricultural sector Mm -hmm. in the Western Cape, which happened to be wine. So I was sort of tracking this just like as a wine nerd. You're you're just, you're (laughs) as you do. Yeah. Yeah. At night (laughs) by the fire. Um, Okay. (laughs) And so like I came I was really taken by that story, mm-hmm. you know, because it sounded, it reminded me so much of my story or a story that I was a part of. I was going to say, genera- your five generations. Exactly, yeah. coming from the South. So it's like, you don't have to be great at math to realize, like, right. there's some some strife in the family, mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, over the years. So um, that's what I ended up doing from 2007. Uh, we had some success. We ended up not building a training facility because as uh, I was I had a partner and uh, what we realized is that the more we took input and feedback from the farmers uh, what they needed was not the solutions that we imagined for them mm-hmm. which you see a lot in philanthropy and right. profits it's like people go into places that have problems and they say we have all the solutions yep. mm-hmm. instead of asking listening listening yeah. exactly <laughs> asking what do you need what can be done and so when we did that we realized that what they actually need is help getting their wines to the u.s you know the oh. way that we could most radically change their lives is yeah. like get someone to order their wine it actually makes perfect sense so that's what we did it ended up being kind of a nonprofit wine brokerage mm-hmm. um and we started helping with imports. We started marketing the wines for all the producers. We threw parties, um, came up with collateral material, and we shot videos. And that's how I really came to this idea of storytelling uh, from the point of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was like in 2008, which is, again, this was a horrible time to be in nonprofits. Um, right. <laughs> in fact, the day that the layman's collapse happened, I was on a research trip with my partner. We were in Stellenbosch, just outside of Cape Town, and we're watching the news. And basically the way that it's being reported on BBC is like, this is end times in the U.S. Like, just don't even bother. Cancel your ticket home. (laughs) Stay where you are. (laughs) It's not even worth it. The U.S. is not even going to be there. Um, And so we, you know, it really... Of course, we panicked because we were uh, a 501c3 and we had worked super hard to get that yeah, that's hard status. To get. <laughs> um, and it was especially hard for us because we were telling the government, OK, so we can't pay taxes, but we're going to we're in the wine business. And they're like, actually, we tax the fuck out of wine. So right. like 
that's exactly <laughs> the wrong answer. Right. So it, we, there's like a lot of bureaucracy. We mm -hmm. had to get some very kind pro bono attorney to help us out. Finally got this designation and then really the bottom falls out of the U.S. economy. Um, and so we decided, okay, we got to sell wine to people now. Uh, and with the complications of the wine laws and each state has their yes. own wine laws. So you can yeah. sell to some states but can't sell to other states. This is also before Instagram and right. Kickstarter. Because right. we had a following. You know, We could have, if we had some of these other resources that we have now in terms of social mm -hmm. um Probably could have made it work, but it got super complicated. I ended up moving to California uh, late in 2010, um, moved to a pig farm in Calaveras County. Um, just because? Just complete because. Complete you needed. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah, basically after the World Cup, we mm -hmm. um, we put a lot of energy into the World Cup. It was a signature event for many people who are doing business in South Africa in mm. 2010. And... Um, you know, that was a moment where I kind of just felt like, all right, we're going to go all in on the organization and this moment and leverage South Africa. Uh, and if this doesn't work, like it's I'm just going to go do something else. And so we did a 13 city food music art tour that culminated in South Africa, went to the World Cup, did lots of events, mm -hmm. exhibitions, really cool stuff, stuff that was well documented that I'm super proud of. Um, and we raised the money to do that. We again were able to create a market demand for the wines, mm -hmm. but oftentimes we couldn't get it over the finish line to have that sale. Right. Because when people said, where do I buy this? You didn't have any of the politics. Exactly. Yeah. It was God. just super complicated. Um, and so I I got out of that business um, and moved to this farm. Where, uh, it's like, I never know where you're going to turn next. I'm like, and then what happens? <laughs> well, <laughs> you cannot guess the ending of this story. No, pig farm. Uh, like what? Yeah. Pig farm next, of yeah. course. That's a logical conclusion. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, um, so, yeah, you know, I... I Again, I was I was into agriculture. And yeah. I was into the grapes. I, I was gonna say there's a wine there's wine country there's there. A major wine yep. country there that people sort of underestimate. Yep. Um, and so that's actually what I did there. I ended up meeting with some people in the wine business in Calveras. That's in the Sierra foothills mm -hmm. in California. Um, and I was there for a while, about four months, and then uh, I had a moment where I wondered if I would ever have sex again. <laughs> <laughs> That was part one of two parts uh, <laughs> with uh, Whetstone publisher Stephen Satterfield. We left you with a gripping cliffhanger. <laughs> Ew. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. Um, we left it sexy for you, you guys. <laughs> but Stephen's great. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, thank you so much for being a great storyteller and really talking about food in a different way. And in a way that Ange and I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, he's celebrating travel. He's celebrating different ways to uh, look at food and how it's produced in, in different countries. And I think it's important. We need to know where our food comes from. And he has put together this beautiful, this is the second edition um, of his publication called Whetstone, W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E. -E. You can find it everywhere. Um, but thanks so much for your time. I just want to remind you guys a little housekeeping. We're at bitchtalkpodcast.com. Twitter, we're at bitchtalkpod. Facebook, uh, bitchtalkpodcast. Instagram, it's one word, is Bitch Talk Podcast, or you can just email us at therealbtpod at gmail.com. We will see you soon for part two of Steven Satterfield. Bitch, please.